Engel. In football or soccer, there are rules for a ball out of play. That's exactly where we're taking you in this podcast series, Out of Play. Beyond the rules, beyond the pitch, beyond the game. Because every four years during the World Cup, it's more than a simple story of goals scored and athletic displays. Sometimes the really interesting part starts after the final whistle. We've crossed the world to talk with journalists and passionate fans to bring you some of these stories that all have one thing in common, the World Cup. In the stories you'll hear, some of you weren't even born yet. For others, you might remember it like it was yesterday. This series, Out of Play, takes you inside eight of these tales, thanks to the people who actually lived them. You may wonder, why choose an American to help tell you these stories? Well, it's obvious. We're neutral. We're never in the World Cup. It was the 1990s. Europe had, for the most part, moved on from World War II, 30 years of Cold War, and was feeling a new wind of hope with the momentous fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. People in Eastern Europe were optimistic about joining the rest of the world and dreaming of better futures for their families. Europe was coming together, and Italian crooner Toto Cutogno won the Eurovision Song Contest with his famous Insieme Unite Europe. Insieme, unite, unite Europe. The future seemed bright for the European continent, but Yugoslavia, as the Balkan bloc was called then, was breaking apart. The political crisis in Yugoslavia began in 1980, with the death of the communist leader, Josip Broz Tito. He had ruled the country since the end of World War II. Tito was the most important unifying factor between Yugoslav nations, and his death in May that year stirred up old tensions. The crisis lasted throughout the 80s, and by the end of the decade, it was ready to erupt. At the time, Yugoslavia was a federation made up of six loosely connected republics, So, a mix of several nations, three religions, and many cultures. Yugoslavia's diversity was a source of tension, and the differences were huge between the more developed North and the undeveloped South. Two things brought Yugoslavia together in the years when everything else separated them. Music and football. In the communist state of Yugoslavia, Football was cheap, accessible fun for the masses. It was for everyone, no matter their ethnicity or their religion. Football was a nice rug to sweep problems under, and politicians knew it. The public accepted that role of football in their lives, but they also genuinely enjoyed the sport. It was an unavoidable part of social life. Each generation had its hero, a player that marked his time, and each town had its local football giant. Yugoslav football was designed for the little man, and the little man loved it. Football in Yugoslavia was helped by the policy that football players were not allowed to leave the country before the age of 27, so they spent their best playing years on domestic pitches. The Yugoslav league was dominated by the Big Four, 
Partizan and Red Star from Serbia, and Dinamo and Hajduk from Croatia. These clubs won the most championships and had the biggest fan bases in the country. Their rivalry was also one of the trademarks of Yugoslav football, which endures even today. The Yugoslavian national team had its heyday in the 1960s. If people from the former Yugoslavia were enthusiastic football fans, it was because of this golden age of football for the bloc when the team made it to the finals of two Euro Cups. The national team brought together people from the whole bloc and from different backgrounds. They played their matches on pitches across the whole country. There was no Wembley or Parc des Princes for Yugoslavia. The entire country was home turf. During that period, Yugoslavia gained fame as the Brazilians of Europe. It's not by accident that famed Brazilian Pele chose to play against Yugoslavia in his last match with Selecao. Pele was a big fan of the Yugoslavian player Dragan Zazic. He had called him the Balkan Miracle, a real wizard, after they had faced each other in 1968. Pele had even lamented Zazic was not Brazilian. He said he had never seen such a natural footballer. That golden age gave birth to some of the best players Yugoslavia has ever had, even until now. The downfall of the national team came at the 1982 World Cup in Spain. Yugoslavia finished, disappointingly, at number 16. Actually, the entire decade was disappointing, as football became a reflection of the political situation in the country. The Yugoslav Football Federation had begun to break up into six separate associations, one for each republic. It was required that each republic be represented equally on the national team. So, instead of being a team of the best players, the Yugoslav national team was drafted to suit politicians. Match-fixing scandals in the domestic league and tensions between the associations naturally affected the performance of the national team, which failed to gain significant ground on the international level. They would have been better off missing the 1984 Euro in France, and they didn't qualify for the 1986 World Cup in Mexico. However, after the 1988 Euro, one of the most famous coaches in Yugoslav history was put in charge of the national team, Ivica Osim. He had won the confidence of the Federation after the 1984 Olympics, where he had coached the team to a bronze medal. As a coach, he transformed Yugoslav national football from amateur into a professional system. It was his popularity with football fans across the country that instilled faith in the national team again. Fans' hopes got a boost when, in 1987, the Yugoslav under-20 team won the world championship in Chile. That team created some of the biggest names in international football, including Zvonimir Boban, Robert Prozenicki, Pedja Mijatovic, and Davor Shuker. It was a good sign that the better days of Yugoslav football were ahead. With high hopes, the eyes of the nation were on the next big competition. Everyone was talking about the 1990 World Cup that would take place in Italy. Italy became where Yugoslav dreams could come true. Yet the road to Italy was not easy. Yugoslavia was put in the qualification group with Scotland, Norway, Cyprus, and powerful France, led by Michel Platini. Coach Osim created a hybrid team of veterans and young champions from Chile. Was it still the pattern of choosing players from each republic instead of the best candidates? When asked, Osim denied it. 
but acknowledged there were still politics. He couldn't avoid politics, but he did manage to build a team with the best players from each republic. And really, the players who were drafted gave every reason for the nation to be optimistic. Not only did Yugoslavia finish qualifications as number one in their group, they did it without a single loss. Yugoslavia was surprisingly impressive. Hope turned into ecstasy. Italy was right there. While the politicians were riling up the chauvinists, football united everyone else. People were sick of politics and everyday problems. They wanted something that would make them proud again. Not everyone was happy about the qualification. Each republic had already started to turn its back on the Yugoslavia Federation and go their separate ways. By the beginning of 1990, the political situation in Yugoslavia was ready to erupt into conflict. The ruling Communist Party started losing power as new movements were rising. The Yugoslav People's Army, the guardian of Yugoslavia, was also losing the influence and power it once had. Leaders of the republics couldn't find common ground and publicly quarreled. The country's collapse was imminent. Politicians said Yugoslavia no longer functioned as a federation. Football was doing its best to prove that it was. Politics could never stay out of football, and so football just couldn't stay out of politics, especially because leading fan groups were recruited by nationalist leaders. You could say it was actually a football match that marked the beginning of the end of Yugoslavia. The derby match between Croatian Dinamo and Serbian Red Star was scheduled for May 13, 1990. The game was never played. Scores of Red Star fans came to Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. The outbreak of nationalism caused severe clashes between police and rioters on the streets of Zagreb and later at the stadium itself. Dinamo's fans burned the flag of Yugoslavia in the stands. The image of the day was Dinamo player Zvonimir Boban hitting a police officer on the pitch. Yugoslav football had gone the way politicians wanted. The game was poisoned. Although most of the national team players were playing abroad, they couldn't avoid the conflict. On June 3rd, Yugoslavia was playing a friendly game against the Netherlands. This match, also in Zagreb, was less than a month after the riots. What happened came as a massive shock for the team. The whole stadium booed the Yugoslav national anthem and the national team for the entire 90 minutes. They even celebrated when the Dutch team scored. Just nine months before Zagreb, the crowd had cheered the team to victory over Scotland. Now it was like a bad dream. Yugoslavia lost the match, but the damage was much worse. The players were totally depressed. The national team was at a crossroads. Many players were warned not to play for the national team, but the players and the bench became determined to fight even harder for the jersey. Instead of staying down, the team rose up and went to Italy unified as comrades. Once again, football had won over politics. Oh man, how people in Yugoslavia loved Italy that summer. It had never seemed more romantic and poetic than it did that June in 1990. Everyone was obsessed with the World Cup. While others laughed at the Chao, the cubic mascot of the championship, Yugoslavs adored it. 
You couldn't find a kid on the street that didn't have a pile of Panini stickers in hand and who didn't know the names of all the players better than their school lessons. Even nicknames were inspired by players. Guys who had curly hair as kids had nicknames like Gulit or Valderrama and still have them even today. Football occupied the hearts and minds of people all over the country. You could feel the tension, the hope, the excitement in the air. Yugoslavia was in a group with West Germany, Colombia, and the United Arab Emirates. Two teams would advance for sure, and maybe even a third. After impressive qualification matches, everyone took Yugoslavia seriously. There was a show on Italian TV where mathematicians, with the help of a computer program, calculated the final outcome of the cup. They predicted Yugoslavia would be among the four best teams. No one was surprised. They all knew the Yugoslav national team was a potent mixture of veteran experience and the elan of young players from the under-20 world championship in Chile. The most experienced was Le Pape, or the Pope, Safet Susic, a living legend of French PSG. There was also the star of the team, Dragan Stojkovic Pixi, who had just signed with Olympique de Marseille for a record salary. There was captain Vujovic, Jozic, Ketanek, Ivkovic, Spasic, Brnovic, along with youngsters Savasevic, Prozinecki, Panchev, Boksic, Shuker, who all had successful international careers later. It was one of the greatest teams Yugoslavia ever had, even without Boban, who had been suspended for kicking a police officer. Okay, it's the first game. The one that either crushes your dreams or really propels you forward. Yugoslavia versus Germany. There was something between the two countries when it came to football. Along with England, Yugoslavia knew better than anyone that football is a game that lasts for 90 minutes. And at the end, the Germans always win. Germany was their football nightmare. Whenever there was hope something big could happen, the Germans were there to smash that hope. Some of the toughest losses were against Germany, although there were times when Yugoslavia triumphed. For the Yugoslavs, football was just a game. The Germans were running and shooting. The Yugoslavs were holding the ball and dribbling. The Germans were systematic football machines. The Yugoslavs were more like artists. The difference between the two teams was enormous. The Yugoslavs both despised and admired German football players. In every game against the Germans, they were afraid, but they also had the overwhelming desire to beat them. Pumped up by their strong performance in the qualification matches, the Yugoslav boys were certain they would win. This time, the art of Yugoslav football would finally overcome German discipline. The game was a major blow to Yugoslavia. The opening kickoff was enough to predict what would happen the rest of the game. Yugoslavia passed the ball backwards to the goalkeeper, while Germany rushed it like hound dogs hot on the trail of a wounded deer. A second-half goal from Jozic gave the players hope they could turn the tide, but the Germans continued to be the Germans. Their grip left no time for the Yugoslavs to catch their breath. Germany scored two more goals, and that was it. The players were devastated. People back home were speechless. 
the gloomy reality of the Yugoslav crisis suddenly came crashing down on everyone. Was the dream already over at the beginning? But Coach Osim saw that the defeat was a needed wake-up call to bring the players back down to earth. He pushed them to give their best to go to the next level. Although Colombia, Yugoslavia's next opponent, was nowhere near the level of Germany, they weren't exactly a joke either. Despite their great desire to move on to the next round, it was obvious the Yugoslavs were scared. The Yugoslav press had no sympathy or support for the national team after Germany's victory. Fans still believed, though. They worshipped the players. Because the players had risen from ordinary people. They were ordinary people. They were the same. There was no defeat or bad press that would shake their faith in the national team. Even after the first game, everyone was still talking about football. Politicians and their quarreling took a back seat. In an atmosphere of imminent chaos, everyone held on to the dream of Italy. And so it began. Just as it was obvious the Germans were the better team in the first game, the Yugoslavs were better than the Colombians. Just one small problem. Yugoslavia couldn't score a goal. Like Beckenbauer had said, Yugoslavs know everything about football. They just don't know how to score. Watching the game was torture. And then it finally happened. Out of nowhere, Devor Jozic took the ball passed by Pixie to his chest and, in the style of street players from Brazilian favelas, hammered the ball into the net just below the crossbar. Higuita never knew what happened. A much-needed victory for the players and the fans back home. They got their wings back. Yugoslavia then easily defeated the United Arab Emirates and finished number two in the group. Spain conquered the group, taking first place. Yugoslavia versus Spain was a particularly tense derby match. Many times, Yugoslavia had felt robbed by Spain. Fans still remembered the 1982 World Cup and the game against Spain, the host nation. Spain defeated Yugoslavia on a controversial penalty and sent them home. No one in Yugoslavia has ever forgiven the Spanish for that match. Once again, Yugoslav players were determined to play their best with all their hearts. Great players need a little time and space to show their greatness. Dragan Stojkovic Pixi showed his greatness that day on June 26th at the Bentegotti Stadium in Verona. The game was completely open. Both teams were attacking full force, but Yugoslavia had a master of football on their side. It was a seemingly harmless advance on the left flank. Vujovic centered the ball to the nearest post, where Katanic just managed to head it back to the farthest post. And there was Pixie. Instead of shooting, he did a brilliant fake-out, sending Martin Vasquez out of the camera frame and the ball behind Andoni Zubizarreta. Many goals have marked the history of Yugoslavian football, but this one was the most special. A true piece of masterwork served as sweet revenge for the past. It was just what everyone needed. The satisfaction of having won at least against the enemy abroad, even if not against the one at home. Yugoslavians needed an outsider to unite them, and it was Pixie. While half the nation was still ecstatic and the other was in disbelief about Pixie's brilliant goal, the Spanish went full force and scored. But no one was disappointed. Instead, 
both the players and fans kept going with even more passion. A free kick, 25 meters from Spain's goal. Pixie takes the ball. The referee sets the wall at 7 meters instead of 9. Again, the refs were taking Spain's side, but no one cared. It was sweeter that way. Pixie didn't mind either, because he was playing at his best. Over the wall, just next to the right post, the ball hits the net. Delirium. On the pitch, in the stands, and back home in Yugoslavia. In a country that produces more history than it can handle, this was definitely one of the greatest moments ever. Players hugged on the pitch, showing the country what can be accomplished when people stand together despite their differences, despite their politics. Streets that were completely empty during the match were filled with people when the referee blew the final whistle. It was a welcome change to see fans waving flags instead of burning them. But wait, it still wasn't over. This time, Yugoslavia knew who was waiting in the next round. Maradona. Yugoslavia versus Argentina was the match everyone was waiting for. This was it. Artists versus the artist in Florence. The Yugoslavian team was getting better and better with each match. So was the players' confidence. They stepped out onto the pitch of the Communal without fear and disregarded that they were about to play the world champions. And such was the game. Argentina had struggled through the entire World Cup, but this time it was total torture. Pixie danced on the field. Yugoslav players attacked from everywhere even after Sabanajovic was sent off after 30 minutes for two consecutive fouls on Maradona, Yugoslavia continued to dominate the game. One shot after another, the ball just didn't want to go into the net. Although the match ended without any goals, it was Yugoslavia's best performance at the World Cup. And then came the penalties. At that point, it all depended on Yugoslavian bravery and skill and luck. Pixie missed the first penalty. But then came Ivkovic, Yugoslavia's goalie. Maradona walked to take the penalty, and Ivkovic was waiting for him. He heckled the best player in the world. What happened, Diego? Aren't you going to look at me? Don't be afraid. I know where you're going to shoot. Check it out. Ivkovic won that duel, correctly predicting where Maradona was going to shoot. Ivkovic's taunts showed the character of Yugoslav players, football, and the country. They were not afraid of anyone except themselves. Although Ivkovic made one more save, Argentinian goalkeeper Gorkochea made three. Argentina went to the semifinals, and Yugoslavia went home. The players were crushed, but back home, people were proud. Once again, they poured into the streets to celebrate. The world believes people from the Balkans are crazy and often celebrate their defeats. But it wasn't the defeat they were celebrating. It was the bravery of the team in blue who, despite everything happening in their country, found the strength to show that unity can make big things happen. Although the players were aware of the turmoil back home, they tried their best not to let it distract them during the World Cup. Once they came home, they had to face the cruel reality that the country was headed further into tragedy with every new day. Footballers playing abroad had the luck to stay out of the gloomy every day. 
Those who were playing in the domestic league had to face the growing tensions among the fans in the stands. Even though Yugoslavia lasted another year as a federation, after the World Cup, it was on a one-way road to full disintegration. Politicians had managed to reach the masses and poison their people's minds. As the Yugoslav Nobel Prize-winning writer Ivo Andrić said, there comes a time when smart people go silent, stupid people start talking, and the ragtag get rich. Warmongers had their minute. Moderate Yugoslavs retreated, football players among them. They retreated to football and used it to protect themselves from the bad things going on around them. The national team had one more opportunity to turn the tides and teach the nation a lesson about unity. In the Euro 92 qualification group, Yugoslavia dominated. This time, the team is composed of young players from the Chile Championship and other newcomers. Qualifying was a walk in the park, but by the end, Slovenia and Croatia had left Yugoslavia. So had the players from those republics. Yugoslavia lost Boban, Prosineki, Šuker, Katanic. Although their hearts were with their teammates, their lives and families were now in different countries. By the beginning of the Euro in Sweden in 1992, Yugoslavia was burning in the flames of war. What was left of the national team was disqualified from the competition. And that was the end of the great story known as Yugoslav football. In the years that followed, the region collapsed into a bloody 10-year conflict. It's estimated that between 150 and 200,000 people were killed. Two-thirds of those, innocent civilians. Four million others became refugees, displaced or having fled the region. It became useless and even indecent to talk about football under such grave circumstances. Italy, with all the excitement and hope it had brought to the Yugoslavs, was put aside, seeming like a dream from long ago that might never even have happened. Teammates from the World Cup in Italy stayed in touch and would see each other on pitches across Europe. They cherished the memory of their unity and strength and the days when they stood alongside each other under one emblem. They defended their friendship with a policy of silence on what was happening back home. Maybe they all wondered what might have happened if they had gone all the way at the World Cup. Maybe it could have stopped the war, but their unity in football has never ended, as if they were born to play together. Just remember the magic of Real Madrid attacking with the duo Shukur Mijatovic, which brought them the Champions League title. Or Milan's Balkan warriors Boban and Savicevic, who dominated the Serie A back in the 90s. As for the people of the former Yugoslavian republics, nowadays they remember the 1990 World Cup in Italy as the last of the good days, when people came together in unity sharing a single common dream that could have been so much more than just winning a championship. Out of Play is produced by Angle. This episode was written by Dijan Milivojevic. Sound production by The in Paris, France. Original score by Roman Pilo and Max Zipel. English version narrated by David Gassman. Find more episodes of Out of Play anywhere you find podcasts and on outofplaypodcast.com.